Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's the pledge drive. That means best of Access Utah. We've selected some passages from some of our favorite episodes, which we feel puts the program's best foot forward. And uh, so we're going to reach back into the archives, this time around uh, the more recent archives. Uh, six months ago, we were celebrating 65 years of UPR, so we went way back. But uh, uh, this time around, some more recent programs, but uh, some very impactful ones, I think. Hope you agree, and if you do, I hope that you will uh, take us up on the opportunity, uh, the invitation to support Access Utah with uh, whatever amount that you feel comfortable with. Um, so we have in studio with us uh, Jason Gilmore. Uh, who is Assistant Professor of Communication Studies at uh, Utah State University. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So we've had you in uh, several times. Uh, you believe in the mission of UPR, and specifically you're a good supporter of uh, Access Utah. So we, we appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Um, and we have some, uh, I think, some some great uh, episodes selected. We'll hear some passages from these episodes. And uh, later today, you can go to our website and uh, click the hyperlink and hear the entire episode if you're interested in, in hearing these. We're going to hear from Philip Dre, a historian. Um, he wrote a book on lynching in America, and uh, it's called By the Hand of Persons Unknown. That phrase comes, you're probably familiar with this, uh, Jason Gilmore, because that was usually the coroner's report. This person died by the hands of persons unknown. Of course, they were well known in the community. Indeed. <laughs> but uh, a, a, a conspiracy, you know, in the community to, uh, we're not going to, we're not going to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, so we'll, we'll hear this passage and then talk about this. And uh, a theme here, we talk with, Phil, uh, with Philip Dre, connecting history to today. And that's something, uh, Jason Gilmore, that you're very passionately involved with yeah um yeah it is it's definitely central to uh the way i teach and the way i kind of look at the world um you know i was i was thinking as we were prepping for this uh for the clips that we're going to listen to and the first one is on lynching and i mean let's be honest that's uh it's a it's a tough subject for us to uh to grapple with um and i commend you for for saying even though it's tough, um, it's important that we talk about this and we we recognize this uh, important part of our past, a very difficult part of our past, but something, well, I, maybe not just part of our past, right, but part of our, our history as it continues to play out today. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I was thinking about how, how so many people shy away from these issues about talking about these issues and they're difficult and sometimes contentious. Um, but it's so important for us to understand this. And, uh, you know, I counsel my students all the time when we talk about, uh, you know, we're going to talk about some difficult things. Um, but I always counsel them that it's important that we go into these spaces, but it's equally important that we, uh, we bring a light with us, right? That we bring hope with us, that we, we think that maybe, in fact, by learning this, we could uh, enact some change in the world, whether it's you know, just in our immediate communities or in general. So again, I commend you, uh, A, on having that, that program throughout the year and always being willing to, to take on these issues, uh, but to bring it into Pledge Drive as well and say, hey, mm -hmm. this, is, this is the best of who we are uh, because we are willing to have these difficult conversations. 
Yeah, uh, I appreciate that, and I did, did think about that. Uh, start a program off on lynching, and everybody tunes out. But I don't think that describes our audience. I think uh, I think our listeners want to hear about these issues. If that does describe you, that uh, you really are engaged in uh, in your community and the issues around you, and you tune in to Access Utah to help you to make sense of these issues, here's how you help. 800-826-1495 is the number to call. 800-826-1495. Volunteers are standing by. They'll uh, just take a, uh, some brief information. just takes a couple of minutes if you've never done this before. And uh, whatever amount really helps. Uh, 800-826-1495. Or uh, you can go to our website, upr.org, and take care of your pledge. Uh, that way, upr.org. And uh, to help you to get there, we have um, a dollar-for-dollar match. And uh, that's from Sonia Manuel Dupont and Ryan Dupont. Uh, every dollar you pledge today will count for two, up to $3,000, thanks to this generous pledge challenge from Sonia Manuel Dupont and Ryan Dupont. Uh, Sonia Manuel Dupont is uh, in the USU's College of Education and Human Services, and Ryan Dupont is a professor of civil and environmental engineering at USU, as well as research associate at the Utah Water Research Laboratory, head of the Division of Environmental Engineering. Uh, so our goal for Access Utah for this hour is $500. Hopefully we can reach that, Jason. Indeed. Uh, so let's, uh, by the way, uh, coming up later in the hour, we'll hear a passage from a program we did uh, when the, the family separation at the border crisis was hitting at its fevered pitch. And uh, at that time, we talked with Sonia Nasadio, uh, who wrote Enrique's Journey. And she actually uh, selected a young man. She wanted she was interested in child migration from Central America to the U.S. And so she took the journey, that the same journey that Enrique did, and then, and then we learned about Enrique. So she has, uh, obviously, some, uh, some opinions on this. And then we'll end the program with a passage from uh, Gary Paul Nampan, who uh, talks about food and farming, a uh, fairly uh, famous author in his field. And his latest project is trying to unite people across that divide through food <laughs> and food production. So we'll end the program on a hopeful note. Uh, let's hear this passage now. Philip Dre is the historian, and his book, um, this is not his latest book, but he wrote a book uh, called By the Hand of Persons Unknown on lynching in America, and here's about 10 minutes from that program. This just looks extraordinary. Uh, just looking at the pictures, it's, uh, 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 you know, my feeling was awe and distress, I guess is appropriate. Apparently the, the, they're headstones, but they're not in the ground. You, the floor slopes down, and as you enter the memorial, you're looking up. At these at these headstones, uh, just as okay. onlookers would have looked at the victims of lynching uh, at the time, right? Because that's very consistent with lynchings were often spectacles, uh, often quite large public spectacles, where hundreds of people would come to observe and so or uh, to spectate, really. And so that's very much that part of the memorial is kind of is echoing this. Um, but yeah, it's a very provocative. Uh, memorial from the images I've seen, and it'll be interesting to see how people react to learning. I think, as you've seen, there's been a lot of a lot being written about it now, too. Um, you know, for many, many years, people thought of lynchings as um, unusual or unique events, aberrational, if you will. And I think what they're seeing now with this memorial is that it really was an institutionalized form of racial violence that had a very long historical trajectory. I think that's really what the memorial uh, communicates very well, and I think it'll be interesting to see how how our society adjusts to it. What do you think, uh, at the time you wrote your book, 
uh, you know, there were there were gaps, and your 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 book uh, moved us forward in in knowledge. Now, almost twenty years, um, advancing in knowledge. What uh, in what ways do you think, and what do we still have ways to go in our bringing this into the public well, consciousness? I think one reason it resonates so clearly today or loudly is, of course, in the last four or five years, uh, because of the Black Lives Matter movement, and of course what what caused that to come about, which was the reports of uh, the police brutality, the punishment of black suspects in custody. Um, and, of course, this, in a way, any kind of racial profiling, the denial of due process to, to black suspects or people in custody, um, is something that harkens back to the lynching ethos, uh, which was more or less that, basically, that all the white men were the police and all the black men were the criminals. And that, that, in other words, that due process of law, a courtroom, a trial, lawyers' arguments, that sort of thing was not required. Um, and so that's how you wound up with ex- what they call extra-legal lynching um, uh, and punishment, basically, for thousands of people, uh, men and women both, actually. So... In a way, I think there is a current, we see that it's still resonant in our society. I think that's why it speaks so powerfully to us now. Yeah, I think that's what, and that's what worries us, right? Because the, this, this is also the, always a possibility lurking somewhere in human nature, and if you get the right circumstances, otherwise civilized yeah. citizens can, can resort to this. I think that, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think there's a larger thing, too, going on, which is that you know, I think up until maybe like 10 years ago or so, for many years after the Civil Rights Movement, we all had a kind of sense of the redemptive power of the Civil Rights Movement, and as much suffering has had occurred and as much pain, I think a lot of us had a kind of hopeful take on it, that, well, yes, these terrible things have happened, but now we've reached a better place. We have laws, the Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act, and so on. We're moving forward We'll never go back to those dark times. But I think subsequently, things have turned a little more pessimistic. I don't, as we know, the Voting Rights Act was gutted by the Supreme Court, and there's still a lot of voter suppression that goes on aimed at people of color. In addition to these police murder killings or murders that I, I've mentioned, so it kind of it, it takes us back a ways, and I think people feel less hopeful, less optimistic about race relations in this country right now. And, of course, that, too, then reminds us that the legacy of lynching is not as far away from us, perhaps, as we like to think. What, what, when was the last lynching? What, I've, I've seen a presentation where you said that's, it's kind of hard to pin it down, but uh, when do we think? Well, it's interesting, because a lynching technically was, uh, as I think Congress or the Justice Department defined it, was it always had to involve at least three people acting in concert. And so, of course, there's also hate crimes, which nowadays sometimes are similar to lynching. But a lynching always involved a denial of due process. And in other words, it involved someone being accused of a crime, but then being punished before he or she could actually enjoy a right to due process, basically, in a courtroom uh, before a judge. And so... Uh, yeah, it's hard to say. Well, people differ when the last lynching was. I always think it might have been the lynching in 1964 of the three civil rights workers in Mississippi, Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney. Um, partly because 
was a very typical kind of lynching, a very almost historic in terms of the police being involved. The police held the suspects and intentionally released them to a mob of Klansmen. Um, they were then murdered on the side of a road nearby. Um, the, the evidence was hidden. It took the FBI many weeks to discover what had occurred. Um, in a certain way, that was perhaps the last. Also, I say that because it was the first lynching that was successfully prosecuted by the federal government since Reconstruction in the mm-hmm. South. In other words, it took about 100 years um, for the authorities to be able to successfully convict uh, for a lynching. Mm-hmm. So that itself, right in itself, tells you quite a bit about the kind of insular nature of those who, the, the South and those who committed these crimes, the the anonymity that was attached to it and the fact that people, sure, either they, people were not indicted, they were not convicted, uh, it took a very long time. So I kind of think of it, and in the late 1960s, other people might differ, um, but for all intents and purposes, that's what I, I use, certainly in my book, that was what I, I used that as kind of an end point. It was it was interesting to me. You'd pointed out that uh, once enough public pressure was brought to bear on lynching per se, then uh, then the I guess the technique was let's just move it into the courtroom. Let's let's put some legal trappings on it, and we'll we'll have essentially what became sham trials. That's right. Yeah, those were called legal lynchings, and yes, you're exactly right. I mean, some of them were absolutely ludicrous in how sham they were. In other words, the the mob would be allowed into the courtroom, they were armed, so there was very little doubt about what which way the trial was going to go. The trial itself might last all of eight or nine minutes, um, and so on. Um, in other cases, it was a more formal affair. Uh, you know, like the famous Scottsboro case was one where it was, of course, fortunately, they, the uh, suspects were not lynched in the end, but it was a kind of a legal lynching procedure. In other words, their guilt was assumed. It was just more of a formality. It was thought that, well, we're just going to, you know, these 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 uh, suspects are going to be dealt with summarily or whatever through the law, but we're going through the steps, basically. Mm. Uh, Last couple of points on this, and we'll turn to the fair chase, but uh, as you pointed out earlier in our conversation, this has resonance to today, right? Uh, some people say, well, can't we just forget the past? Can't we just move on? But, uh, you know, as uh, reading about this, watching your presentations on, on this, just one example, um, African-Americans' distrust of the legal system, it, it didn't, that just didn't start yesterday, right? No, you're absolutely right. That is definitely one of the legacies of, of lynching. It had to do with how cheap a black life was, basically, for so long in America, um, you know, for for more than a century after, uh, you know, after Reconstruction, during Reconstruction, um, you, you're you absolutely right. And a lot of things that vestiges of it still exist, in other words, racial profiling, uh, the, the tendency to assume black criminality um, in either a social context or where the police are involved. And, of course, this has been, we all know this because we see it repeated frequently in our own lives, and of course, in these cases that we often hear about, there's a general a tendency to assume that a black person is guilty of something, especially when they've been, when we're, you know, there's the police are on the lookout for someone or whatever it might be. 
So, so yeah, it's absolutely right. It is, and of course, it terrorizes black families. That's one thing that, you know, lynchings were not. They terrorized people hundreds, hundreds of miles away. They were, they were horrific incidents. Um, if you read like the works of Richard Wright, for instance, the famous American black author, he writes extensively about what it was like to grow up in the Deep South in the lynching era, when all parents and worry were fearful of this. And of course, we see this even today. Parents warn their black sons to, you know, how to beware of the police, how to behave in their custody, and so on and so on. Again, that's a legacy of that of that past. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams, and you heard there from historian Philip Dre, uh, who uh, wrote uh, one of his books is called uh, By the Hands of Persons Unknown. It's about lynching in America. And uh, so there's about 10 minutes from uh, that program. We have with us uh, in studio Jason Gilmore, Assistant Professor of Communication Studies. And uh, still to come, we'll hear a passage from my interview with Sonia um, Nasario uh, when the family separation crisis at the border was at a fevered pitch talk about uh, she'll talk about uh, why she thinks people are coming and uh, then a uh, hopeful passage from uh, Gary Paul Nabhan who uh, his latest project is to try to unite people over food and through listening so we'll hear that passage as well so I, I'm uh, itching to have a conversation with you Jason Gilmore about these issues uh, uh, but in the meantime we need to take care of uh, the main business for today, which is <laughs> drumming up support for Access Utah. Uh, if you're a regular listener, if uh, this is where your ears are on a 9 o'clock on, on a uh, Monday through Thursday or 7 o'clock hour in the evening, uh, or maybe you're consuming this by podcast, uh, now's the time we come to you and ask for a bit of support, just some financial support. We have a whole host of thank you gifts on our website, upr.org. You can take a look at those. So we're more than halfway to the $500 challenge, and so we want to thank, and we do thank. Whenever I say we want to thank, I think of my father, Jason, who who would always say, uh, they said, well, you want to thank them. Well, why don't you? Well, we, <laughs> I do thank, I do thank the following. Michael Taylor and Karen Kettenring in Logan, and Tyler King in Logan. Thank you so much yeah, for your you. support. Won't you add your support to theirs at 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495 is the number. I'll say it once again, 800-826-1495. Or you can go to our website, upr.org, uh, upr.org. Uh, and uh, we do have a challenge. Your money will be doubled uh, today up to $3,000. We have a goal of $500 uh, for... Um, uh, for this hour uh, for Access Utah. And uh, this uh, listener challenge is from San Sonia Manuel DuPont and Ryan DuPont. So thank you. Uh, they've already uh, taken care of half of that. Your pledge will be doubled uh, today. So uh, the number again, 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495. We'd sure like to get this $500 uh, to, to keep on track with Access Utah. So Jason Gilmore, uh, I ended my conversation, at least that passage with Philip Dre, with a very important question. And I know you um, you have a dog in this fight, as they say. Um, you take students on civil rights pilgrimages and, and the like. So I know where you come down on this question. But some people say, well, why, why do we have to dig this stuff up? Why do we have to continually, you know, isn't that the past? Why do we have to keep picking at this scab of this, uh, you know, the slavery and lynching and all of this stuff? I mean, at the same time, why do we keep commemorating the good things of our past? Mm -hmm. Because they define who we are. 
right? They define who we are. And I think one of the one of the great things that historians do, and I'm not a historian, I dabble, um, but I'm not a historian. But I think the one thing that, that historians really bring to this world uh, that we undervalue as a regular on a regular basis is that they understand that human history is not this thing that uh, happened at one point in time and is incapable of happening again. What they have fundamentally understood is that humans in 1400 were capable of good and bad, as well as people in 2018 are, are capable of those equal good or bad things. And that by learning from the things that we would like to eradicate from our world, from our potential history in the future. Um, it's important to understand that that we've or that humanity has done horrible things and is capable of those things, and that we need to rein in society so that we live uh, to our better ideals uh, than to than to turn to our worst uh, uh, notions or our worst. Uh, Sorry, a word isn't coming to me. Um, impulses. Um, so I think it's it's fundamental uh, to our understanding of us as a nation, uh, us as a humanity, uh, to take a look at both the good and the bad of the the past. And sometimes uh, we spend too much time on on defining it as binary, as good or bad. It's all uh, good and bad. It's 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 who we are as a nation. And the moment you dismiss part of who you are uh, is the moment that that you disrespect yourself. Mm. Um, and so I think it's incredibly important that we, we delve into these issues um, focused primarily on making sure that this, uh, we do as much as we can to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Mm. One of the things public radio listeners, you, you do surveys, one of, the, one of the things you learn is uh, that public radio listeners are very interested in lifelong learning, <clears throat> always learning, always want to learn. And I think that's important. Um, wherever you come down on some of these issues of today, they do have they do have a connection to the past. Uh, Black Lives Matter, indeed. Um, you know, kneeling during the national anthem, the, the football games. Uh, the these how do, we treat immigrants. How we treat immigrants. Yeah. Indeed, they do have a connection uh, to the past, and understanding that can 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 help you understand the issues better. Um, anyway, anything else you'd like to say about the? about this lynching history. I know um, you've, you've had some experiences there. So, yeah, I, 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 was, I was telling you, Tom, at the, uh, over the, what we were listening to the, the segment, um, that on the civil rights pilgrimages, we've interacted with the Equal Justice Initiative, the organization that put together the lynching memorial. Um, and, you know, uh, we participated in, um, we went to a, through the Equal Justice Initiative, uh, we we saw them how they're trying to reach out and uh, identify the different lynchings throughout America, which is now uh, funneled into that uh, that monument. And um, what what is incredibly important about their work is that they are making sure that that narrative and that part of our history is is fused into the way we talk about our country. Um, but if you look at the the main focus of the Equal Justice Initiative, they're seeking to change things today, right? So it's 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 really tying in the past to make sure that today we're doing better. Mm -hmm. So yeah, 
Let's take a break. When we come back, we will hear uh, from Sonia Nasario, who's author of Enrique's Journey. Uh, she's very interested in uh, especially child migration. And I reached out to her for a recent program when the zero-tolerance immigration crisis was and the family separation crisis was at a fevered pitch. And then we'll end the program with a conversation with Kerry Paul Nebhan on uh, how do we come together, how do we bridge divides. Uh, all of that to come. We have with us Jason Gilmore, Assistant Professor of Communication Studies at Utah State University, who's in to help me to encourage you to uh, support Access Utah. And here's how you do that, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. We are more than halfway to our $500 goal, and you can help us to get there. And remember that your money will be matched dollar for dollar by Sonny Manuel DuPont and Ryan DuPont. More following this break. Choices can give us freedom. It used to be the case that when you went to the supermarket, there was one kind of pasta sauce. And choices can paralyze us. At one point, I think I went into a grocery store and discovered 36 different varieties. And that's just the small stuff. And most of life is not prepackaged. I'm Guy Raz. Decisions, 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 and how we make them. Next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Sunday afternoons at 2 on Utah Public Radio. This week on Undisciplined, we're talking about police and predators. Joining us are Shafali Pottle, whose recent studies have offered surprising insights into the way law enforcement officers see their jobs, and Dan McNulty, who studies wolves in Yellowstone, and whose work has given us a deeper appreciation for animal interactions in that national park. That's Undisciplined, Friday at 2. This is Debbie Andrew, Development Officer at Utah Public Radio. 38 years ago, when UPR was just 27 years old, John Lennon was shot and killed in New York. The Pac-Man arcade game was released, along with post-it notes and the Rubik's Cube. Mount St. Helens erupted. The world tuned in to see who shot JR. And I graduated from high school. Happy 65th anniversary, UPR. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's a Pledge Drive special edition of the program, and uh, we are uh, dipping into our archives, in this case, fairly recent uh, programs, uh, to uh, give you the best of some of the programs we consider to be the best, most representative of our best work. And it really is all about community. We have with us uh, a very important member of our Access Utah community, Jason Gilmore, Assistant Professor of Communication Studies, who we've had on the program uh, several times. We loved your Civil Rights Pilgrimages reports. Um, we had you on, I think, most recently on the 50th anniversary of the death of Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, we were reporting from, from Memphis, I yeah. think we called into the show, yeah. And then we had Dr. Forrest Crawford from Weber State University, who was very eloquent about... Yeah, spe- uh, spectacular guy. Um, so uh, today we are... Uh, the, the major focus is, quite frankly, to hopefully remind you, hopefully you agree, hey, Access Utah, great program. <laughs> um, Indeed. And uh, I need to support that. So uh, however you do that. Uh, so I hope that's the message that you're that we're putting out and hope that you were receiving that. Uh, if you 
agree. 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495 is the, uh, is the place to go, is the number to call. Just a couple of minutes, a friendly volunteer will answer the phone. They'll ask you some uh, basic information, how much you'd like to pledge. We'll be happy with any amount. Uh, and especially now, uh, you'll your money will be doubled be doubled by Sonia Manuel DuPont and Ryan DuPont, dollar for dollar match. And our goal for the program today, Access Utah, is $500. And we're about halfway there, uh, according to the last tally. So we'd like to get all the way there. 800 826 1495. We're going to go next, uh, Jason Gilmore, to uh, just a brief passage from a program from June. Uh, when uh, the whole crisis of family separation was happening at the border. I was about that, I think that was on the same day that uh, President Trump announced that they were discontinuing the, the, that, uh, that policy. Mm-hmm. It was at a fevered pitch that this whole thing was, and so we talked with Sonia Nasadio, author of Enrique's Journey. She's interested in child migration, and uh, I thought she'd have something good to contribute on, on this as well. So let's uh, jump right into this, and then we can talk about this, uh, okay. Jason. Uh, let's, uh, Emily, let's, let's use the short version here. Uh, if I have a long and a short, let's use the short. And uh, this is a conversation with uh, Sonia Nasario, author of Enrique's Journey, and uh, she, she talks about uh, why people are coming. People are running for their lives, and the solution to this is a pilot program uh, that the U.S. began in, in January of 2016, where you release parents with their children and you assign them a case manager. Um, we tried this in five cities. And these case managers not only help refer to legal services, education for kids, food and housing, but they also provide guidance to how to sort out very com- confusing orders on when to show up to court, when to show up for your ICE check-in. And they drill people with the importance of showing up to their immigration court hearings. And in, with these case managers, 99% of immigrants show up to their case hearings. And when they're ordered to um, voluntarily deport, 79% of them did so. President Trump abolished this pilot program uh, last year. Um, this is cheap compared to locking kids up. It's $36 per family per day versus more than $900 to lock up the typical uh, family per day. So it's incredibly cost-effective, and it works. And so instead of locking people up and and, um, having this chaos, we should implement these kinds of programs, or at worst case, put ankle monitors on mothers. That works as well. They show up to their court hearings. There are ways to do this uh, cheaply and more humanely. And if people do not win their immigration court cases, summon them to come to ICE offices to be deported. And if they don't show up, go out and get them and deport them if they're not entitled to stay in the United States legally. There's a humane way to do this that is within the rule of law, and that's what we should be doing. Martin has emailed us. He says, migration of undocumented families to the U.S., yes, against the law, uh, nevertheless, represents individuals seeking safety, one of our most basic needs. And the migration of those families is not such an imminent threat to our safety to warrant the tra- traumatization of children as a direct result of our reaction to this perceived uh, threat. That's uh, Martin. What do you think, uh, Sonia Nosario? Well, I think there has been an effort to demonize migrants, to criminalize them, to portray them all as uh, criminals who are out to come here and harm you. 
And especially when it comes to these immigrant children coming alone, uh, there has been a steady drumbeat that they are all MS-13 gangsters. And yet when uh, ISIS, one of ISIS's top officials testified before Congress, they stated that of 250,000 of these children who have come here alone uh, to the United States and appeared at our border, of 250,000, 56 were suspected or confirmed uh, gang members. So we're talking about a very small fraction. Most of these children are running from gangsters who are trying to forcibly uh, recruit them, like child soldiers are recruited in, in Sudan. Um, and so um, there, there's an attempt to create a false narrative about many of these migrants. Migrants, study after study, have shown uh, are, commit fewer crimes than people born in this country. Um, but that's not the portrayal that this administration wants people to have of immigrants. I mean, we know that in war, first you demonize and then you attack. That's the strategy, and that's the strategy that they're using. Yeah, the the uh, the language is striking. The president's using words like vermin and infestation. Right. Uh, and, right, and uh, the, those are not the migrants I know. There are bad people in any group, uh, you know, certainly. And I've met bad migrants, but the vast majority of migrants that I have met, and I've covered this issue for more than two decades, are people who want to come here and provide a better life for their families. They're, they are economic migrants. And now, increasingly, 53% of the people who present at our southern border and are caught, are apprehended, are from these three very violent countries. They are mostly from these, the folks at the southern border are mostly from these very violent places. And, and to give you a sense of how violent, uh, a couple of years ago I went to report for the New York Times in the most violent neighborhood in the murder capital of the world for four years in a row, San Pedro Sula, Honduras. And in the neighborhood where I spent time, the gangsters had um, one day were playing soccer with the head of someone that they had decapitated. And the police were completely uh, controlled by the gang, paid off by the gang. Uh, the gangs were completely in control of the streets. And um, w- what the U.S. has done in some of these places is that uh, they have implemented violence prevention programs that have worked in the U.S., and in this very violent neighborhood, our programs over two years reduced homicides by 62% and uh, cut the number of children who are fleeing that neighborhood for the U.S. in half. Um, that's the solution to this uh, immigration uh, issue. Uh, it's not passing draconian laws. It's not building walls that don't work. It's not locking up uh, families with their children in or putting them in perreras, as Latinos call them, dog cages. Uh, it's addressing what is, uh, you know, at times there have been greater pull factors for migrants, but right now what's really operating are these push factors in these countries, people being pushed out, moms saying, I'm going to get out before they kill my child, before they uh, rape my daughter. And that's what we have to address. And the, the, the impulse has been to cut these programs in Central America, build walls, and lock people up. And I would argue that that hasn't worked in the past, and it will not work now. We know it works. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's the best of Access Utah for the Pledge Drive. Uh, you heard there from Sonia Nasario, who has an interest in and uh, advocates for uh, child migrants. And uh, she's author of the 
the book Enrique's Journey. You can find a lot more about Sonia Nasadio by going to enriquezjourney.com. Um, so, Jason Gilmore, a definite point of view there from Sonia Nasadio, some expertise. Uh, wherever you come down on the issues, not only immigration, we try to present a whole variety of of uh, viewpoints, but always uh, we try to, to make sure that those are well-informed viewpoints. Indeed, yeah. And she uh, she definitely knows her, her stuff. I mean, to, to offer policy alternatives um, is, I mean, from her perspective, probably the best thing she can do, right? Because if she's challenging a policy, uh, but without any kind of secondary, here's what we should be doing, or addressing these things in the communities uh, that a lot of these people are coming from, um, uh, you know, it's semi, it, it, it kind of fizzles, but she's got actual actionable things uh, to address. And I think that's spectacular. The one thing that um, <clears throat> I think I, I can speak to, uh, and then I talk to my students a lot about, um, is the, the how do we talk about groups of people? Um, and she talks a little bit about how we were, the, there is a narrative out there that immigrants are this or immigrants are that. Um, and she's contributing, I think, to the narrative by saying um, immigrants are amazing people. Immigrants are uh, showing the, the uh, most courage or more courage than, than many of us have ever shown in our lives to leave uh, their homes and their livelihoods to, uh, to flee because of uh, dangerous uh, backgrounds that they're coming from. But, but what, what I think is important in this is breathing back in the humanity into the people that we're talking about. Instead of taking a big broad brush and and just painting a group of people in one way or the other, and that allows if we do that, that allows for us to just say, oh, we can discard that, or we don't have to worry about them because obviously they're violent individuals or they're this and that. But I think at the same time, what we don't realize is that we all have the power to um, to to contribute to that same narrative, right? To, to expand upon um, that single narrative. And uh, you and I were talking, there's a, a great TED talk about the danger of the single story, that when you tell a single story about uh, a, a, a given group of people and tell it over and over and over again, that's what people end up believing about those people, especially if, if the people who are receiving this message have never had contact or uh, don't have any experience with that. So it is really incumbent upon all of us to tell a new narrative, to contribute to a new narrative and say, these are people, a diverse group of people, right? And that means that there are moms who absolutely love their kids and are deciding to, to move them to a new place because of a new uh, uh, opportunity. There are people who are incredibly creative and sit around their kitchen table and, and uh, you know, draw up. Uh, uh, maps of architecture that they want to do when they become an architect and get the opportunity to to go to school. There are there are people who who laugh and and roll around as a family and and open their door to their neighbors to come in and and create a sense of community. That why don't we tell this multiplicity of stories that are available to us uh, that are that we look in our communities and tell those stories about our communities? How do we not? then understand that other communities are just the same. Any group of people is a diverse group of people with fantastic, amazing, and sometimes horrible things. 
Um, and so uh, you and I talked about maybe putting up on the UPR website. Yeah, let's, let's do that. We'll ask Emily to put that up. Uh, uh, the, the great uh, the, the TED link talk. to the TED talk. Yeah, yeah without a doubt, it's, it's yeah. spectacular about the dangers of telling a single narrative uh, about any people. Yeah. So. Uh, let's see. Let's take a break. When we come back, we will um, give you uh, an update on progress toward our $500 goal. We're not there yet, so uh, your pledge right now will be doubled by Sonia Manuel DuPont and Ryan DuPont uh, from here at Utah State University. They have very generously offered to uh, match dollar for dollar. All pledges made today up to $3,000. Our goal for Access Utah is $500. We're making progress. We're not there yet, so please call 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495. More following this break. Arts reporting on Utah Public Radio is supported by the Office of the Executive Vice President and Provost, celebrating USU's Year of the Arts. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, it's international pop music. Songs with mainstream appeal from Africa, the Caribbean, Asia, and Europe. Un principiante che non aveva mai amato un po' distante. I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for World Pop, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio would like to thank our partner, the USU Center for Women and Gender, for sponsoring the UPR original series, Utah Women 2020. Find out how you can become a sponsor by calling 435-797-3215. Happy 65th anniversary, UPR. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. It's a special Pledge Drive edition of the program today, and we're hearing some best of segments from the, in this case, the fairly recent past. Uh, we have with us in studio uh, Jason Gilmore, who's Assistant Professor of Communication Studies at Utah State University and frequent guest on the program uh, to help encourage your support for the program. We have a dollar-for-dollar dollar match all day up to $3,000 from Sonia Manuel DuPont and Ryan DuPont. Our thanks to them. And our goal for today is $500 in Access Utah. We thank Linda Roberts of Hyde Park who is called in in support of UPR and Access Utah. And that puts us almost uh, to $500. Not quite. So your pledge uh, right now may put us over the top and, and help uh, to hit that goal. We want to reach that goal for Access Utah. And uh, remember, your money is doubled when you call 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Or you can go online to upr.org. I want to get now to a, uh, a passage uh, from uh, just very recent past, uh, August 8th of this year. I talked with Gary Paul Nepan, uh, who is an agricultural ecologist, ethnobotanist, ecumenical Franciscan brother and author, many books. We talked uh, for the first part of that hour about his new book, Mesquite, uh, the story of a an arboreal love affair, I think he says. Um, but then in the later part of the program, we got talking about his latest project, which is how do we heal the divide that seems to just be growing uglier and uglier in this country? And he has some ideas on that. So here is a portion of my interview with Gary Paul Nepan. What was your goal with this book? Well, I had been grieving that we see such deep chasms uh, in our communities, especially in the West, where uh, some people who've been living next to one another for years or decades don't even talk to one another now and then because... They feel divided by uh, their beliefs in faith or science. Uh, they feel divided by uh, uh, 
skin color or by uh, class. And yet, uh, I'm sure you feel this way some days in Utah, as I do in Arizona. You can't help but bump into someone with a different worldview than yours, and they can enrich our lives just as much as mesquite trees and and uh, and uh, wildlife uh, can. And that we really, I think, the most important job we can do as Americans today is to bridge those gaps by um, getting in the trenches together, getting our hands dirty, and working to um, heal the landscape that nurtures us, whether it's a, a, a rangeland or an orchard or a, a trout stream or um, a, a forest with uh, pinion nuts. We, when we work together with people who have ideologies different than ours, we find common ground that we wouldn't if we just um, listen to the pundits on uh, TV who are almost paid to divide us. And so I feel great solace whenever I go out into the rural communities of Arizona where I might be working with uh, old hippies and conservative ranchers on the same day, trying to heal the uh, erosion cuts in an arroyo and bring water back into our, our uh, streams and lakes. And that, I think, is the essential work that we have uh, in front of us, or we will be what the Bible and Abraham Lincoln warned, warned us against, a house divided. So uh, when you talk to aging hippies and the conservative ranchers, are they talking to each other? Well, that's a great thing. At farmers markets, uh, we can all see what I call the ideological horseshoe. That uh, on um, many issues, uh, uh, sports, religion, and politics, these folks might not want to talk with one another. But everyone who sells at a farmers market, whether they're Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative, uh, uh, immigrant or native wants good, healthy food for their kids and feels that uh, the place we live in matters and our communities matter. And so uh, the ideological horseshoe is where um, old liberal hippies and and land-based conservatives are really coming together, nearly touching, uh, because they both care so deeply about having healthy foods and healthy landscapes within which to live. On your website, which is, by the way, GaryNebhan.com, um, you talk a little bit about, um, I wonder if you could recount this, you, you, you said you uh, talked to an apple grower um, and uh, who said he likes to sell, uh, he would love to sell heirloom um, you know, varieties, but uh, he has to sell what, uh, what sells, right? And then you That's talk to right. somebody That's in right. New Orleans, I think. If... Uh people don't eat it, he can't save it because he needs to make a living as a farmer. And I think that's one of the things that that um, uh, environmentalists um, need to understand, that most rural people who may be a bit more conservative than, to them are really concerned about livelihoods, not only for themselves, but for their kids and grandkids, so that they can stay in their landscape. And if we create those uh, uh, that kind 
continuity in communities by creating jobs or reinforcing jobs where, where someone is putting food diversity on our table, everyone wins. Uh, we have a more stable human community in which to live, a more stable environment which people care about because they know it well, and uh, uh, creating livelihoods with livable wages in our community is what a lot of people who vote very conservatively most want. We need to get over the, the false assumption that uh, protecting the environment always means that a community loses jobs. In our community in Patagonia, over 75 jobs have been created in the last uh, six years uh, with something that we call Borderlands Restoration Network, and about 130 high school kids have gotten money for their college education um, by working in the summer uh, with older ranchers and farmers uh, doing uh, planting windbreaks and and uh, creating water harvesting surfaces that bring more irrigation to their crops and and planting pollinator gardens that increase the uh, yields of uh, fruit orchards so we find some common ground rather than assuming that our values are diametrically opposed to one another. Do you think we, you, you know, you're, you're on the ground, you talk to people, do you think we're, I guess this is me searching for some hope, or do we think we're more united than, than it appears in the media? Because you, you made a, a passing comment, which I think is very true. You know, a lot of people in the media are, are, are paid to, to divide it. That's what sells. And, that's right. That's why I love uh, your program and others like it, where you really listen and bring on people that, I mean, <laughs> sometimes I think my job is to listen to views other than my own. And I really think we have to have that as a cultural practice again. And in some cases, that's what uh, different uh, congregations or, or community clubs do. You, you bring people of different uh, professions together, and they find common ground to each other. Uh, people of the Christian faith often talk about coming together at a common table, and for a moment at least each week, we put aside our differences, and we emphasize our shared values. And so I don't want to get political or religious on, on anyone who feels uncomfortable with that, but I think this is a common human instinct. That, that we need places where we can practice that kind of communal spirit. And, and frankly, I have to say I have a, an incredible respect for the rural Mormon communities that I've worked in around Capitol Reef and, and Moab and Monticello that still have that uh, uh, common interest in their, their land and their uh, town and their community. And I've learned a lot from people in Utah about this. It, it's not restricted to indigenous people or, or um, Hispanic communities at all. It's, there's many different uh, ways that communities have found uh, practices that bring people together rather than emphasizing our differences. Uh, I want to uh, talk a little bit about, uh, just follow up with something you said, very interesting. You said you feel like sometimes your job is listening. And that's a skill, I don't know, there's a culture, perhaps we're 
we're losing. We need to, we need to restore that. I wonder what you would say how to be an effective listener. Well, I hear, hear what you're saying in the sense that it's a skill that somehow you'd think would be innate to human endeavors. But we get barraged with so much information, and now that information can be so siloed where we just hear uh, stuff that reinforces our own worldview. And I think um, having to spend time in different cultures where I was literally learning their language, but also learning their ethics and sensibilities, gradually taught me how to be a deeper listener. I couldn't assume that um, what I thought was scientifically accurate um, was um, something that they sensed was happening in their immediate environment. They would have a metaphorical language that used words unlike what I had been trained to use, and yet after a while I realized they were making completely valid observations that had a lot of um, not just scientific veracity, but common sense in the, in the manner that it could help us take better care of the environment. And so listening to people who speak differently than you, use a different uh, cadence and vocabulary, and have um, values and, and ethics embedded and the way they speak is something that we all need to practice more so that we see that the distance between the other and ourselves is not that great. Gary Paul Nepan, pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Tom, thank you for not just this opportunity, but for all you do for the communities within your uh, sound reach and, and uh, keep up such great work. It really matters at this point in time when our country is so divided to reassuring stories from a variety of voices. So thanks for your work. Well, thank, thank you to you as well. Appreciate that. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. We do appreciate it. That's Gary Palnapan. Uh, Jason Gilmore, I, I had a choice. I could leave that in or, or take it. Obviously, we're, we're touting ourselves, so I left uh, Gary Palnapan's nice words about Access Utah. So thanks uh, to Gary Palnapan for that. Uh, but that's our focus. Mm-hmm. We're, uh, we're reminding you, I hope, uh, of the valuable service that Access Utah is. If you agree, then uh, we hope that you'll call 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Our thanks to Nick Herman of Smithfield. He says, shout out uh, to Access Utah. Love listening in. <clears throat> and we had a, a pledge from uh, someone in uh, Paradise. Thank you to you as well. You know who you are. So uh, just uh, about 30 seconds. Um, I know you have thought a lot, uh, Jason Gilbore, about listening. Mm-hmm. Unfair. Thirty seconds. What, what's your what's your take on this? Uh, Gary Paul had talked about this. Yeah, I think uh, the best thing I can do is tie it into the story that we were talking about before. Um, is our assumptions about large groups of people, be them immigrants, be them uh, Republicans if we're uh, Democrats or Democrats if we're Republicans, uh, we do them the disservice of of painting them with a single brush and not asking them for their story and assuming that maybe they. Uh, they approach the world the way they do because they care about it. Um, and uh, we do that through listening without a doubt.
Thank you so much. Thanks for all the work that you do, and uh, thanks for, for coming in and helping us out today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Jason Gilmore, Assistant Professor of Communication Studies, has been with us. Thanks for all of the pledges during Access Utah. We really appreciate it. And uh, just a reminder here, Sonia Manuel DuPont, Ryan DuPont, will be matching your pledge dollar for dollar up to $3,000 throughout today. Uh, the number is 800-826-1495, or you can go to upr.org. And thanks for listening to Access Utah today. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard and streaming online at upr.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU Kane College of the Arts 2018 Convocation with artist Patrick Doherty, combining carpentry skills with his love of nature through his stick sculptures. Tuesday, September 18th at 5.30 p.m. in the Russell Wanless Performance Hall. Details at cca.usu.edu.